Hello, my name is Omar Khulif, and I am the curator of this year's 154 Forum London, which is titled Continental Drift. Continental Drift was imagined or conceived perhaps as a what I dubbed a modular opera of the sort, a space that is freewheeling and constantly changing, just like time itself. It exists as a forum for people of the African continent and its diaspora to think about themes of legacy, lyric and song, trauma and history, and our progressive ideas and ideals for the future. Welcome to On Fragile Ground, our first poetry salon. And this is really an experiment of a sort to think about in these virtual fishbowls, if you will, if we can connect some of the most interesting and contemplative and meditative voices using lyric and song to imagine a conversation. I wanted to begin by reading a very, very short paragraph about the concept of poetry. Before I do that, I should mention that Otobong Nakanga, who is a, a, an artist whom I've worked with for an incredibly long time, but also a, a sister, a friend, has been there as a force for me to encourage the interrelationship between language and text in relation to visual culture. And that's why we're doing this today. And indeed, the title itself is a reference to many of Otto's works. And Otto herself has played a bit of a curatorial hand even in today's selection. But before that, I wanted to read a paragraph that was recently offered, not yet published. I haven't even told the person that I'm reading it by a mutual friend of Otto and mine called Zachary Cahill, an artist based in Chicago. And talking about poetry, he refers to it as suffering at the speed of invisibility. And he says, tomorrow never arrives in our distant future. Somehow it is always just lying in wait and ambushes us unawares. If poetry is poetry, then it functions like tomorrow in this way. It is not that poetry is or should be full of surprises, waiting to pounce on us like a cat from behind the door. Rather, it tells us things that we already know and yet are surprised by, which makes it ring true. How that truth-like feeling lands is different for everyone and varies from moment to moment and in the speed by which it is encountered. Like the pop song playing on the radio as you motor along the freeway at sunset that brings you to tears for reasons that you can't entirely understand, but you know all the same. Thanks, Zach, for allowing me to read that. <laughs> so um, we're very fortunate to be joined today by four incredible artists who 
are going to present four different readings. We're going to begin with Otto Bonakanga, followed by Lubena Hamid, and then and then Isaiah A. Hines, and then Anesh Duplan. I'm going to go ahead and read their bios now so that you have a moment um, to contemplate those before um, we be, in, instead of interrupting our salon. And then afterwards, we're going to get into a discussion amongst each other and it will be free flowing, just like it should be, and we hope it will be. So Ottobong Nakanga is actually joining us this afternoon from uh, Bregenz, where she is preparing a major monographic exhibition at the Kunsthaus Bregenz. And it also simultaneously has just completed the installation of an incredible new monographic exhibition at the Castillo de Rivoli in Torino. Ottobong is was born in 1974 in Kano, Nigeria, lives in Antwerp, lives and works in Antwerp, and has been the subject of many exhibitions, including one that we worked on together to dig a hole that collapses again at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, has had exhibitions at the, the, the BAMFA, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Films Art Center in Berkeley, and Actually, far too many places for me to remember Villa Arson in Nice actually also is currently coming to an end. Uh, the Tate St. Ives in the UK, Nottingham Contemporary, Tate Modern, The Tanks, and on and on. And one of the things that is incredible about Ottobong also is her commitment to her philanthropic work, and she is also the founder of the Carve to Flow Foundation in Nigeria, which we will be discussing tomorrow in our panel, The Path Towards the Future. Ottobong also was featured in the Venice Biennale, last Venice Biennale work, she received a special mention. After Otto will be Lubena Hamid, CBE, commander of the British <laughs> Empire, Royal Academician. Um, Lubena Hamid is an artist who for over 30 years has been working primarily in the medium of painting, where she constructs bodies from an imaginary, telling stories that are infused with contexts that merge the kanga shops of perhaps a specific part of London with the entire history of painting itself. But within those paintings is something incredibly unique, which is the desire to consistently move from scale and object uh, using an acrylic on large scale canvas to a, a tiny drawer, a chair, the unexpected is always a part of Lubena's um, um, practice. And Lubena began by studying feature design and then studying cultural history at the Royal College of Art and is a pivotal figure in what some of us refer to as the British black art movement, having been also uh, a curate, an artist curating, as opposed to a curator, I would say, um, iconic exhibitions that have really brought together voices, specifically Black female British artists, into the lexicon. 
who might not be heard today. And also, Rubena is uh, an incredible writer, author, and also an interlocutor that I have come to have the privilege to know more recently, and is also two things. The first woman of color to win the Turner Prize, which happened, I believe, in 2017, far too late in the game, I have to say, um, as well as the subject of a major uh, monographic presentation at the Tate Modern opening in late November of this year. And as well as that is a professor at the University of Central Lancashire, where she has taught for 30 years, supporting incredible voices to emerge and to ascend um, into the world. After that will be Isaiah A. Hines, who is the author of Null Landing, which is going to be published this year, uh, winner of the Slope Edition 19th Annual Book Prize. Isaiah's work traverses writing, research, performance, and installation, staging thought experiments designed to demonstrate the capacity of Blackness to apply stress on our modern post-Enlightenment ethical program. And these are words we received directly from Isaiah. Isaiah's approach is preoccupied with the equation of value and its role in substantiating the ethical indifference with which Black suffering and routine ecocide are met. Born in 1999 in Burlington, Vermont, now based in Brooklyn, Isaiah teaches, create, creates and teaches curricula for high school students, uh, uh, high school equivalency exams at the Brooklyn Public Library's Adult Learning Center. And then Anaïs Duplan is a trans poet, curator, and artist. He is the author of the forthcoming book, which is actually launching in a couple of hours in real life. I Need Music, published by Action Books. And most recently, before that, a book of essays from which Anais will be reading today, Black Space on the Poetics of an Afro Future. I came to know Anais's work through a, a poetry collection published by Brooklyn Arts Press, uh, which is called Take This Stallion. Um, Anais teaches poetry at numerous colleges, including Bennington College, Columbia, Sarah Lawrence, and others, and has been a public programs fellow at the Museum of Modern Art, and also is um, an inaugural Okwi Inwazer curatorial fellow. So without further interruption or ado, I will pass over to Otobong Nakanga. Early morning blues, 
taints my skin hue? Will it be lighter or a darker brew? A, a day after the morning fest. And so I woke to another being broke. And so we woke. Do you doubt what you see with your own eyes when being woke? <laughs> we sat and looked at the stars in stark darkness. You are revealing yourself, oh little being. You reveal your light, your glow, only to blow my mind knowing how far you are, how grand you are, how old you are. You, you, you grow, oh little being, as another one goes broke. Late night blues taint my heart's hue. Late night flows. Will it be heavy, burdened with fear? As the feeds infect my early morning views, the daily swipes, monthly swipes, slowly wipes my point of views. The daily vibes, the lengthy vibes, slowly grinds my view of you. And so I woke to another being broke. So, oh, oh, so, oh, so we lay days on end floating and gloating. The pressure digs, digs, digs deep. As the world moves on, the lights blink on faintly, lamely, breathing each other as we lay, searching. Ways to end, ways to numb, ways to bend, ways to blow, ways to float, ways to strain, ways to score, ways to fall. And so we woke to another being rogue. <laughs> the riots begin with myriads of folks crowding the center to create the haze, the gray haze that thickens towards the core, carbon-rich dust. Molecules illuminate like starlight. And so, oh, oh, so, we were broke. And then we broke into the race to avoid the mace that swirls around the weakened nerves of an awakened gland. So, oh, oh, so, so, oh, oh, so, we grew bustling hubs, yellow red patches, thermal glows of young stars, eternal blows, cracking fragile scars. Although we broke, new stars are formed born from gases, sweat, and ashes now.
I'm going to read um, something by Andra Simons um, from the book Turtle Men. It's called Counting Stones. My grandmother had almost drowned when she was a girl in shallow water. When every other island girl was taught to swim, she taught herself to swallow brine, clap at the water, never to go down. Those soft hands, the color of cream tea, collect stones where the sand meets the hard grass. Each is inspected under her thumb. She only needs one, two, three. Each one goes into her pocket. We are at the longest bay in the west, facing north. High tide has come in and we have drawn back. My grandmother sits on the sand nearest the mangroves where the water is shin deep. She unfastens her brown leather sandals and places them at attention beside her. Her faded lemon dress with the floral patterned pockets seems strangely out of place here. Her eyes are fixed on me. I find a white clearing amongst the seaweed bed. I'd swim over those dark shapes beneath, afraid to put my feet down upon the slippery softness. I jump up and down, water at my waist, slapping an aquatic heartbeat with flat palms. When my grandmother is at the beach, silence isn't an option. Her eyes remain fixed. Through the years, I had heard of fishing boats named after great-grandmothers drifting back home without fishermen. We knew they did not go down easy. Or young folk daring on rock edges as hurricanes closed in and nowhere to be found when the storm closed out. Or those young folk, sorry, or those battered for, battered for and stored below ship decks, one by four by black millions along a well-mined passage towards so-called new worlds, collateral to be dropped, heartbeat overboard, silence at last an option, or an empty makeshift raft from a blockaded island towards a rhinestone democracy, or tens of thousands called towards the Mediterranean from the deserts and jungles and the Holy Lands. Dozens upon scores who sail inflated vessels painted the same color as passports, flag stars, and stretched tarpaulin, washing up as stones onto shore, waiting to be gathered up by grandmothers, where the sand has etched a hard border between itself and the free grass. This whale is a 27 meter long, nine ton, 104 year old, charcoal black. Snow gray, broad markings decorate her jaw, fins with tiny floral like spirals around her tail. She passes by the coast to sing every year during whale watching season. She is a breaching whale, the mouthful of krill and seawater leaping onto the sheets of sky until her tail dances tippy-toe on the north horizon before the clapping hard onto the ocean's back. Then she goes swiftly deep 
belly full of breath, seeking out waterlogged ghosts who have forsworn the surface. My grandmother is Grace. She is stealthy, gliding under pressure between the layers of the dark Atlantic until each open mouth is accounted for. Uh, and next, I would like to read something um, by Ocean Vuong uh, from the book Night Sky with Exit Wounds. And the work is called Self-Portrait as Exit Wounds. Instead, let it be the echo to every footstep drowned out by rain. Cripple the air like a name flung onto a sinking boat. Splash the Kapox bark through rot and iron of a city, trying to forget the bones beneath its sidewalks. Then through the refugee camp, sick with smoke and half-sung hymns, a shack rusted black and lit with Bart and Guy's last candle. The hogs' faces we held in our hands and mistook for brothers. Let it enter a room illuminated with snow, furnished only with laughter, wonder bread and mayonnaise, raised to cracked lips as a testament to a triumph no one recalls. Let it brush the newborn's flushed cheek as he's lifted in his father's arms, wreathed with fish gut and marlboros, everyone cheering as another brown gook crumbles under John Wayne's M16 Vietnam burning on the screen. Let it slide through their ears, clean like a promise, before piercing the poster of Michael Jackson glistening over the couch into the supermarket where a Hopper woman is ready to believe every white man possessing her nose is her father. May it sing briefly inside her mouth before laying her down between jars of tomato and blue boxes of pasta, the deep red apple rolling from her palm, then into the prison cell where her husband sits staring at the moon until he's convinced it's the last wafer God refused him. Let it hit his jaw like a kiss we've forgotten how to give one another, hissing back to 1968, Harlong Bay, the sky replaced with fire, the sky only the dead look up to. May it reach the grandfather, fucking the pregnant farm girl in the back of his army jeep, his blonde hair flickering in napalm-blasted wind. Let it pin him down to dust where his future daughters rise, fingers blistered with salt and Agent Orange. Let them tear open his olive fatigues, clutch that name hanging from his neck, that name they press to their tongues to relearn the word, live, live, live. But if for nothing else, let me weave this death beam, the way a blind woman stitches a flap of skin back to her daughter's ribs, yes. Let me believe I was born to cock back this rifle, smooth and slick like a true Charlie, like the footsteps of ghosts misted through rain, as I lower myself between the sights and pray that nothing moves. Um, I'd like to read something else as well. I hope that's okay with everybody. Um, this is a poem by Maud Salter. Um, 
she wrote in about 1989 and can be found in a book of hers called Zabat. And the poem is called Bounty. Tulips, spilled sensuous stamen, scattering intense purple pigment across glass-topped tables. Brown petals, sun-kissed yellow, shot through with spiced pink, flanked full and open cords. Had nature been in attendance to her full omnipotence, fat bumblebees would hover patiently, collecting nectar for the goddess, back leg pouches overflowing as returning posses deliver up their tributes. Alas, our sister slept too deep this May afternoon. No platoon in striped regalia came creeping to collect her bounty. And so she also neglected to attend our 20th century fable. And as a last piece, um, I would like to read one of Audrey, Long, Audrey Lord's poems from the book Chosen Poems, Old and New. And it's called On a Night of the Full Moon. Out of my flesh that hungers and my mouth that knows comes the shape I am seeking for reason. The curve of your waiting body fits my waiting hand, your breasts warm as sunlight, your lips quick as young birds between your thighs, the sweet, sharp taste of limes. Thus I hold you, frank in my heart's eye, in my skin's knowing. As my fingers conceive your flesh, I feel your stomach moving against me. Before the moon wanes again, we shall come together. And I would be the moon, spoken over your beckoning flesh, breaking against reservations, beaching, thought, my hand at your high tide, over and under, inside you, and the passing of hungers attended, forgotten. Darkly risen, the moon speaks, my eyes, judging your roundness, delightful. Okay, um, I'm going to read a piece from um, no Landing, my book coming out later this year. Um, Cybopendandra is not an endangered species. The cotton tree, also commonly known as a kapok, is a historic symbol in Freetown, the capital city of Sierra Leone. It is the oldest cotton tree in Freetown. According to the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the status of Seba Pentandra is of least concern. The Seba Pentandra is vulnerable, an important source of fiber and timber. On my mother's birthday this year, the cotton tree caught fire under mysterious circumstances. Freetown Mayor Yvonne Aki Sawyer said that the city had hired a tree specialist to assess the damage. 
a legend says that the cotton tree is where on March 11th, 1792, a group of African-American former slaves who had gained their freedom by fighting for the British during the American War of Independence settled the land and established the modern Freetown. Before the newly freed Africans arrived, Sierra Leone had already been inhabited. The exact age of the cotton tree is unknown. It has yet to be met with geologic techniques of time telling, like tree boring. A similar fire occurred in 2018. The cause of the fire is unknown. Saiba pentandra is not an endangered species. Parque de la Saiba is a passive park in Ponce, Puerto Rico, where my great-grandmother was born. The historic tree is the centerpiece of the park. Here, it is not called Kapok, but instead just Saiba. The Saiba pentandra is vulnerable. It is said that the tree was already very large and very tall at the start of the new world. On December 30th, 2006, La Ceiba de Ponce lost a large limb that accounted for 30% of its foliage at that time. On July 18th, 2011, the tree lost another large limb. The 500-year-old tree stands on the edge of the Ponce Historic Zone, an area believed to have been the site of the first settlement of Europeans in the Ponce region. In the surrounding grounds of the legendary Seba, you will find broken pieces of Taino pottery, shells, and stones. After the event, only 35% of the remaining tree was estimated to still be alive. The fruit of the Saiba tree contains a fiber that is eight times lighter than cotton and five times more buoyant than cork. Mattresses and pillows were once stuffed with Saiba tree fibers. My grandmother works with vulnerable mothers and their children. The word Saiba comes from a Taino word pronounced Seba. Seba is one of the largest and tallest trees in the tropics of the Western Hemisphere. They have been known to reach heights of over 180 feet. The Saiba pentandra is vulnerable, but it is not considered an endangered species. A sign on the fence that surrounds the tree identifies it as Saiba pentandra. A traveler writes, really sad to look at this majestic tree so deteriorated. I would only recommend visiting this tree if you hold dear memories of it. The tree is closely related to the baobab tree. The Saiba tree is Puerto Rico's official national tree. It was recently discovered that the absorption capacity of the fiber of the Saiba fruit is also higher than that of polypropylene the material normally used in the cleanup of oil spills. The wood of the Saiba tree is exceedingly lightweight and easily worked. It lacks durability and is susceptible to insects and decay. 
it has mostly been used for the construction of large canoes by indigenous people in the region. Canoes made of cyber tree trunks were able to seat over 100 men. And if it's okay, I also would like to read a new piece. Um, that's sort of a continuation of this piece um, based on some recent events. Um, so this piece is called, Had There Been No Intelligent Life? There'd have been no canalization resulting in the cutting of part of the tree's roots. Lacking an actually existing intelligent agent to imbue it not only with historical value, but indisputable botanical value. What expanses of viral airs are respired raw in this scenario? Before any major vaporizations, before the gradual reorientation of water molecules in the soil structure, what extinctions were survived so that we could be here together? What it must have been like, the land, before time, before the stifling insistences of gravity, not like being from the earth, laying for a long time in the dirt, so long that by the time you are uncovered, a thick film of what scorchings have been withstood, that force that dumbly disperses itself, cauterizing. You could hardly live without the thought Give a hand not afraid to touch that grasps you firmly. And the sound would still travel like pyroclastic flows. These truths hardening like basaltic rock can thus be assumed. You will not consume me actually existing intelligent agents, thick spray, when we reason about those sad, far away, intelligence-free scenarios, the abstract counterfactuals said to lack spatio-temporal lo location, said to be causally inefficacious, how to approach the philosophical challenge posed by mathematics. Where do us black mathematicians, where are the mathematical objects located? It could not have been otherwise, and yet. Let us call some particular tree T in the collection of its parts at a particular moment, P. Since trees can survive the loss of some of their parts, T can exist when P no longer does. Does this mean that T is something other than P? Or more generally, that each thing is distinct from the sum of its parts? Can P exist when T no longer does? if the parts of the tree are dispersed by timber felling operations. 
how something could be both one and many. Let us humor Parmenides in the rejection of infinite divisibility in favor of a more physical process. It has been assumed that an object has a part corresponding to every part of the space that it fills. Let us believe that there are not many things, but one thing. Thank you for that. Um, and it's so lovely to be here with um, Audubon and Yubena, who are legendary, <laughs> and to share some work with you this morning. It's lovely to meet you, Isaiah. Um, so I'm going to read uh, from the last essay in my book, Black Space. And I'll just see how far I get. Black Space. When I'd finished writing an early version of Black Space, a friend asked me if I had come closer to freedom. I said no, but I understood better what I needed to do to get there. I had said this much earlier on in my gender transition. Over the course of this book, I've gone from living as a woman to living as a man. I've had to learn new social norms. As a trans man, I ask myself, when to be silent and when to educate. Once on a subway platform, a guy nearby said to me, hey man, did you see that? A voluptuous woman had just walked by. Should I tell this guy how much it sucks to be ogled as a woman? I'd been initiated into a club I wasn't sure I wanted to be part of. I now had the privilege to be silent, complicit. The freedom afforded to me by transition is not that I went from one identity to another, but that I went from a singular identity to the slow, meticulous destruction of identity and endlessly morphing, changing, unreliable process. Identity is capricious. The first half year of transition, when I was painfully attached to my fledgling self-concept, I thought obsessively about my identity, how well and effectively it could be crushed. Around the same time, my relationship with my family crumbled to the ground, I saw myself navigate conflict in ways that announced to me I would never be the same person again. Not only would I never be who I was before, but I would never occupy an identity in quite the same way. I survived my own annihilation. I was not the idea I put my credence into, I was somewhere else. To move toward freedom is 
subtractive, less do I resonate with a piecemeal version of my self-concept made up of what I like, what I don't like, my political ideas and the historical memory of my people, all monsters on the other side of a window, they look real. I can see them, they are frightening. They appear to be close, they can never touch me. The antidote to chronic loneliness isn't to seek people, it's to dig into what it means to be alone. My thoughts about the world around me are projections, each and every one. My thoughts about myself are projections onto what is ultimate reality, which has no words attached to it. Realization in itself produces a great aloneness in me. Judgment of the world around me is a way of forcing a relation where I feel the threat of the disappearance of my identity. The mind senses how tenuous identity is. If I don't keep working at it, it starts to fall apart. I don't control which pieces fall off either. I don't even know when they fall. I may just see myself differently. Why is the mind afraid to disappear, but when it disappears, there's no sign of it? Why is there fear around a process that produces serenity? I ask questions without waiting for an answer. Eventually the questions themselves don't arise. For the past couple of years, many memories from childhood and adolescence have returned. They are painful, other times benign, like the memory of a street I used to walk down or a bowling alley, an old apartment, a person I once talked to. The person I am today arises out of moments I can remember and moments I can't. It's unclear if recovering memories makes me act differently or if I'm recovering them at instances of transformation when I become able to accommodate the new information. The mind is a web. I see visual resonances hear sonic resonances, feel how I felt before, and at the same time feel about how I felt I don't need to know. As a result of years of bullying by my peers and my family, I got it in my head that the best way to avoid future abuse was to know all I could about the present situation, myself, others, but most importantly, about the world in general. I studied sociology and anthropology in college, plagued by the sense of not grasping social interaction. Mind you, it doesn't make you any less socially awkward to read Irving Goffman. I resemble today from the outside the mostly well-adjusted people I loathed as a misanthropic teenager. 
the reasons for writing a book, a desire to disseminate information, the desire to speak, a call to lyric, a cinematic urge. Human minds are conditioned along many of the same wave patterns. What's inside me is much like what's inside you, what you want, where you're going. These are qualities of a hive mind. In writing, individual qualities become less important, even how the individual embodies the collective. A kind of individuality isn't important. I'm prone to overvalue the extent to which I am a unique person, despite any, and there's copious evidence to the contrary. Who I am feels every day a little less important. Thoughts come faster than is possible to track. Typically, arguments unfold in linear or at least parallel pathways. I'm thinking about something you said last night, and it's made my work much better, but it'll be some time before I say this to you. I thank you in this indirect manner. I thank you with my eyes and my manner. There's never a dull moment. There isn't a topic in here. I don't know how to get out of here. I have no one else to be. The race to freedom starts in immense persistent pain, the pain of loss, the dog of grief, which follows at my feet. What makes grief grief is the way it eludes articulation. It's like being toppled over by something that doesn't exist. What should I do? Pain arises, pain is being, pain dissipates, depression is a war with myself, pain is separation, peace with paradox is what creates freedom. It's reflection upon the dualities that makes them dualities. Without reflection, they are a multi-branched plant. Have you ever thought about why you are where you are? Have you thought about the impulse to go forward? The impulse to go forward exists beyond any given action or any actor of the action. It's impossible to outrun myself. Wherever I go forward, I find myself. Why read to an audience? Why share work one has written? What is the point of artistic production that happens, at least in part, in public? Who is arts public? How does this differ depending on who creates and what is made? Does art need a public? In the last 24 hours, I became fascinated with the idea of invisibility. I've spent much time focused on the idea of a public for my work, whether I've admitted this to myself or not. Yesterday, I thought, what if invisibility is just as compelling? I thought about this as I walked home. When I passed people on the street, I thought about our similarity. When I see people in love, I feel invisible. It reminds me of when I felt love in the past. I was much like the people I see. Human emotions, though potentially vibrant, 
are much the same from person to person. We are much more similar than different to each other. I think I'll stop there. I'm gonna begin playing something. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging. From the southern trees, strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the Strange Fruit began as a um, poem written by Abel Mirapol in 1937. He was a Russian a Jew who grew up and was born in the Bronx and became a school teacher and reportedly uh, taught at high school level, James Baldwin, among others. His two adopted sons who were orphans went to school with the famed activist, Angela Davis. The poem, Strange Fruit, inspired by an image of a lynching was published in a teacher's journal after which he was encouraged to set it to music and it was taken to Billie Holiday, who recorded the first version. A contralto, Billie Holiday, the rarest, purest form of female voice. And I chose to play this for two reasons. One is that on Thursday, I played nine different overlaid versions of Strange Fruit that I had to learn at the last minute because I'd invited a singer 
to do it and pulled out. The singer was a white male countertenor, which is the equivalent of a contralto, a male equivalent, a man who sings like a female. And I was thinking about the idea of multiple embodiment, but also I had recently seen on Mare Street, just around the corner from where I live, by just around the corner in London terms, I mean about 15 to 40 minute walk, depending on how fast my chunky legs can move, um, a series of sculptures by an artist called Veronica Ryan, um, which are of Caribbean fruit to commemorate the Windrush not commemorate, to the, celebrate the lives of the Windrush generation, those who have suffered. But in particular, what I, I couldn't get out of my head was how bulbous and kind of almost vile looking and violent the fruit looked and how fruits such as custard apple and breadfruit are associated with particular parts of the world of identities. And I couldn't then stop but think of strange fruit. And I was listening to it again and again, and then remembered that it was also a poem. And today's session was on fragile ground. I gave everybody the prompt to think about the environment, notions of justice in relation to the environment. And from that, we've seen a kind of heard, pardon me, a dizzying array of poetry that has, or lyric and poetry that has been embodied by people who are embodying other people in the case of Lubena, for example, embodying the voices of many people whom she's chosen to bring into the room, but also people who have offered texts that they have come back to and their own sense of embodiment may or may not have changed, but in some cases has. And that to me is a very beautiful place to end my contribution to the Salon. And I'd like to open up and ask our guests to unmute themselves, which sounds a very odd phrase, but, and to ask, a question and then allow us to kind of just move into that. This is really a space for us to think together. And Anais, I wanted to start with you. And there's this real sense for me that of the personal and the political intertwining against the notion of an image that has been constructed by a society which you're unsure whether you want to be a part of or not, but also constantly negotiating with. And I wanted to ask you to elaborate on this idea of this, these constant personal tensions in relation to the space around you, whatever that space may be. Sure, yeah, that's great. Um... I was talking with a group of um, students, were not, not my own students, I was visiting a class about uh, work by the video artist 
uh, Ulysses Jenkins, where he is um, in a room that is full of televisions and she's got a sledgehammer and he's kind of walking around the, the room and um, occasionally in the video, there will be clips of um, films that were made at the time, this is like 77, I believe, um, and earlier that feature sort of like white people in blackface or just kind of highly stereotypical images of um, black people and, um, when he's, so he's walking around the room and you're seeing these kind of uh, representations from these documentaries and he's reciting uh, this poem, which we'll see if I can um, recall it. You're just a mass of images you've gotten to know from years and years of TV shows. The hurting thing, the hidden pain was written and bitten into your veins. I won't and I can't relate, but I think for some, it's too late. So that that I, that comes up for me, Omar, um, in thinking about the way that the individual might become sort of sub, sub, subsumed by um, a kind of social cons construct, um, you know, becoming a mass of images that you've gotten to know. But what's interesting to me about the video, I mean, I think that critique of representation is very familiar. Um, and, and many artists do that in, in different ways, but um, is the sort of failure that happens there because he, he, he gets the sledgehammer and at one point I think he's about to like smash the TVs, which would be, you know, break free and kind of articulate himself and he doesn't do it. He kind of breaks down into nervous laughter and then just sort of mumbles for a while. And I think about that moment so much, kind of like uh, seeing that the kind of world of ideas around one's identity in the social realm are lacking or, or kind of fail to articulate the truth of the individual, but also being not totally able as an individual to break free. And so being, being kind of cast into this liminal space between individual and collective. Um, and so for me, I think when I say in, in the essay that I read today that, you know, transitioning wasn't about of going from one identity to another identity, but instead about never quite um, kind of occupying identity in the same way. It's that um, that the, I'm very interested in this kind of like undecided liminal kind of fluid space between a sort of individual distinct identity, you know, me on and my specificities, and then like um, the things that I glean from the culture that are not about me necessarily. Um, I think that's really generative space. I sort of enjoy being there. Would you guys like to, guys, would you people like to, <laughs> would you folks like to comment on each other? Would you like to say things? I, imagine you're in my living room, which is what, what this is meant to be, ideally. We'd just be in my living room reading this to each other. <laughs> I have a I have a question for um, Nubena and Audubon, but I don't want to jump ahead to that. If there's um, things that people want to say, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Well, it strikes me. So my back my education background is in poetry, and but before that I was I did visual arts, and it strikes me that 
more visual artists are interested in poetry than the other way around. And so I wonder if you could speak to um, your relationship with reading poetry and how you feel that it, that it, you know, why, why, why do that? <laughs> yeah. I'll go, Anais. I think, um, I don't think I could, I don't think I could survive without reading poetry. I don't, I think it's been, you know, poems and, and that way, way of expressing, you know, that sort of just such carefully honed, a uh, beautifully crafted way with words is something that, you know, as a visual artist, I, I mean, I just can't, I just cannot do it. I can't be that, yes, such a, I, I can't do it with such craft, you know? And so I kind of look to poetry for, for the strength, for the context, um, for kind of companions on the road as well, I think, to making, to making work. Um, and because a lot of the work that, that I have always made refers to and has conversations with um, Zanzibar, where I was born, my grandmother, who I never knew, um, but kind of searching for home and understanding that home is something you make, not something you, you know, but not something you're given even. Um, I've found solace, I think. I mean, the work that I read today um, was very much work that I think is a kind of some of the epitome of me having conversations with my grandmother um, who, who died when she was the age that I am now, in my late 60s. And um, yeah, I, I just see poetry as something that I, I really could not live a week without, um, yeah, being... I don't know, sometimes fighting with, but, but also, yeah, poetry comes alongside me um, constantly. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. Uh, thanks for asking the question. I, was, I, was, I had a question for you, Anais, nice, so uh, I think I will ask after I've responded to you. Um, um, I, I, there are many ways of thinking about poetry. In short, I don't even think about poetry. I just, I am in poetry. That's the way I, you know. Um, and I think what poetry allows is that it goes beyond the politics. Mm -hmm. It can infuse different worlds within it. It kind of compresses and condenses multiple worlds without having to feel any kind of separation, but it allows you to also dream of worlds. It's almost like a drawing for me because you can clash and put together multiple ways of breaking down things, of understanding, but at the same time, it can bring you into a world that is beyond this world. It allows me to imagine a world where 
there are other kinds of possibilities, but also grounds me between within the realities that are set in the world we live in. So um, for me, I enjoy writing poetry while making work. And the two work together because they allow for me to um, bring in the- I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. To bring in emotion, to bring in also references of things. Um, for example, the poem I just read was um, called The Haze. I did not give the title of the work, but I, I just immediately delved in through it through voice work um, because that's the way it feels. Like you start with breathing and waking up in the morning and it starts with early morning hues or views. Or, and, and so, I think with poetry, when I was making this poem, I was also making the word manifest of strains and double plot, which talks about manifestations and manifestations in different ways, looking at the constellation of the sky and seeing the stars and the moment they glow. And meanwhile, they've been there for ages, but at the same time, lying next to your loved ones and feeling and gloating about life. And the next moment you're in a, a time thinking about, you're hearing on the news, the riots. So there are these compressions of worlds happening at the same time as you're looking through the sky, lying with someone, experiencing or seeing something happening. And while things are burning, at the same time, love is glowing. I mean, it's that kind of um, constellation that I was interested, I'm interested in when reading poems. So even listening to all the poems, um, you're feeling that you're in multiple worlds at different times. And I think that's the beauty of it. Um, but that's why I write poems, to be able to compress and condense all this together. But one of the things I would like to ask um, Anais was, um, you were talking, within the work, there is the deep sense of identity and the shift and transitioning and the kind of struggles of that. Um, and for me, I don't know it. I, I mean, I don't know it in the sense that you know it, right? I know it in other ways of like trying to just understand the female body <laughs> and trying to understand how to deal with that within contemporary spaces. So I'm always, um, it's maybe it's my naivety, I don't know, but I'm always interested in understanding at what point does one kind of feel that they've, they've entered a place through the movements and the kind of understanding of identity? At what point in time do you feel that this is the moment that I can feel I am here and this is it? It's there, you know, because the word transitioning is always like you're in movement, but do you ever get to a point that you're like here or you, can you flow within it back and front? And front? Yes, yeah, my I don't know. That's, so, that's a really beautiful question. Um, I appreciate that so much. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, at the beginning of transition, which for me, I mark with like changing my, choosing to change my body with hormones. You know, the, there was stuff I was doing before then, but kind of making the decision um, that to kind of permanently change my body. And at that moment in time, um, time was such a real thing and markers were such a real thing. And I was, you know, tracking my voice and looking and this happened to my body, you know, and trying to, and so the, the, the feeling of an end point 
um, felt so real to me. And then, you know, that was um, four years ago. And in that time, so many things have happened, including you know, surgery and, and, and things that have really, really changed my body. And I find that um, as more time goes on, um, there are things I celebrate, like I celebrated top surgery. I was like, oh, now I have a body that, you know, it's like hot boy summer. I was like, I'm gonna take off my shirt. <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, and, and that changed my relationship with people in my life and, and, and everyone. And so there, there are changes that I still appreciate, but I am so uninterested in the kinds of gender performances that I was interested in at the beginning. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Like, if you think I'm a girl, you think I'm a boy. Like, I'm like, whatever, <laughs> like, I don't have time. And it's so much more fun. There's like a joy and surprise and, and movement and fluidity that um, I think just gets more and more complex and enjoyable to me. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like uh, you're really illuminating for me what's like the joy of transition, which is like just a never ending kind of flow and change, yeah. Well, that means that the book Black Space really enters into that place of joy. Yeah. Of acceleration of you know yeah okay yeah yeah thank you for that i mean i, I love this idea of flow Otto, and also like the idea of flowing between time and isaiah had the, actually it was autobahn that introduced me to isaiah's work and what i love is this 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 kind of it's it's not entirely clear to me read listening and reading um, the way you describe this tree, that whether it's a metaphor, whether it's uh, at moments it feels very present and then it feels like we're deep in the past or, or is it a fiction, is it a reality? And I wondered if Isaiah, you could maybe illuminate some of those questions with what you feel comfortable sharing. Absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, so definitely, I think in that piece and in a lot of my writing, I do kind of go in and out of time. And I think um, it kind of relates to what Audubon was saying in this condensation of worlds and multiple worlds getting compressed into one. And that happens like across time scales. And so and the tree is also, the tree in this poem, I think makes that more, makes that very possible because it is 500 years old. So it, looking at the life span of this tree um, makes like human lifespans seem like small and um, kind of asks you to reconsider and what is, what makes up a life. Um, and so, and also the tree is a, it, it's a real tree in Puerto Rico. And part of the reason I wanted to continue those pieces and um, write some new works on this tree is that uh, it was just kind of came out in the news that the tree is, um, is going to be taken down. Um, and because it's at this point unsalvageable, um, it's, 
its last, it has like one bow, one remaining bow that's supported by steel beams. And um, it's really just, for me, it's so interesting to see how people speak about the tree um, and about its life coming to an end as if it's just kind of like mm, matter of fact or all of its own accord, but it's very clearly from, you know, from like community development and um, sort of processes of urbanization um, in the community um, that have killed the tree. Um, and yet no one is kind of speaking about that. It's um, people are speaking about, oh, this tree has withstood hurricanes, it's withstood earthquakes, um, but what finally kills it is, is time but really what's killing it is, is colonialism. Um, and so I think like just thinking about the kind of narrative of this tree um, asks you to go back in and out of time. Um, and so that's, I think what I've done in a lot of my writing is follow the kind of stories of objects or things or um, like plants and animals. Um, like this tree is the protagonist of um, a lot of my writings and I try to just follow that line. And there was an interesting line that I'm not entirely sure I understood where you mentioned, is it that the, the, the type of tree is not under threat of extinction, is that correct? Yeah, it's... Um, According to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, um, it's classified as, um, it has the status of vulnerability, but it's not classified as endangered. Um, and so I included that line because I wanted to think about these kind of like metrics of vulnerability or like how we measure those kind of things um, because on the island, there's um, only 500 native trees left, but yet it's not considered endangered, um, although it's clearly in a state of great vulnerability. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was particularly, you know, moving to think about this idea of, and I just said it now in the chat, I love the idea of metrics of vulnerability. It's this, how do you measure something who measures that? Why do they measure it? And actually, that's an, a, a strange and a coincidental connection to Ottobong and I's kind of biggest project that we ever did together, which is called Aging Ruins in Sharjah. And it's a permit. It's Ottobong is the first female to have a permanent installation in the Emirate of Sharjah. And we didn't imagine it was going to be a permanent. We thought it was going to be completely ephemeral, but basically, I was in a state of, let's just say, disrepair. And I found this heritage house crumbling with this dead tree. And I just invited Otto Bong. I gave no instruction beyond, I want you to make something in this space. And Otto Bong became obsessed with this dead palm tree and gave it life through voice. And I don't know, Otto Bong, if you want to say anything about that because the that work is also a poem i mean the title is a poem the 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 installation is a poem i don't know if we could touch upon it 
Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I mean, the, the full name of the poem. The, the poem, I have to remember, Aging Ruins. Um, oh, God. That could recall a hard chisel of the past. Yeah, that recalls a hard chisel of the past. So the way of thinking about that was really to talk about the things that we do not see, the non-visible things that could have killed a tree. And, and, and I think when you start looking at within a society and certain long-term um, kinds of habits of doing things, um, what do those habits actually do to um, life forms that are around us? And I started imagining this tree drinking so much salt water because of us drinking so much fresh water and using fresh water and also desalinating the salt water. And what does that do? And then it creates brine. I think in one of the poems, someone talks about brine. I think you do, um, um, Isaiah, I think. Did you mention brine in your one? <laughs> uh, it was me, I think, in the... Um... Yes, in brine. Home. Yeah, exactly. About brambles um, and whales. And yes, swallow brine. Yeah. yeah. And so that thought of brine, of something that is changing that we don't see gradually until the fresh water goes, until the death of something. So death is just a result of something that has been brewing underneath. And we just see the result through a certain kind of fin finality. So this... This talked a lot about also addiction, about life, about things that are not visible until a dead tree appears. So coming back to you, Isaiah, I think that death of that tree ha has been something brewing, something has been brewing underneath until we see the death of it. And I'm interested in those places of the brewing, things that are kind of working without the without our eyes actually seeing until it becomes a state. And that state then um, we implement it by either killing it or dissecting it or totally ignoring it or caring for it. And these are the places that I think through poetry, through artworks, through books that we write, we understand the worlds that are shifting and it allows us to expand on and give voices to non-living things, to living things, and voices that most people will not hear and are not willing to hear or to see. I mean, Lubena, I, I, I feel that there's a, the first poem that you read had, um, which I remember you posting on Instagram, uh, you, had, you had written the endorsement for it. That mm. book. There was, I couldn't stop thinking about the idea of flowing back and forth across an expanse, this idea of water and movement, water and movement. And I don't know if you wanted to talk about the specific resonance of that, because for everybody, I think, there that can conjure something very different and very particular but that almost felt sorry to reflect to, for so long that felt almost like lyrical and abstract and then oceans ocean bongs was almost violent in its explicit um kind of notion of a kind of trauma and i i was just wondering about the choice of that to begin and and those metaphors what they mean to you yeah well I suppose, you know, I'm completely um, 
I don't know, um, drowning sometimes in how to um, express that kind of sorrow, uh, the sorrow of loss or the sorrow of um, voices unheard or voices spoken and not listened to. Um, and I guess a lot of my painting work is a battle between being very, wanting to be very explicit and, and yes, show, reveal, you know, the great violences that are done, but a real determination, you know, for the last 40 years to show some strengths and some, um, hope that can that can and does and has to come out of that. Um, and so I wanted to start with uh, Andreas Simon's work, which has, yes, I suppose a more gentle feel, but to, but a very mm, something, yeah, something of very much a drowning feel to it, you know, gentle in that sort of way. Um, and, and then Ocean Fuang, you know, I, I don't know enough about the history and the, and the politics of Vietnam, but I found, you know, when you recommended um, that uh, book of po poems to me, that there was so much that resonated and how could this possibly be? And I suppose I wanted to play those two sets of uh, uh, books of poetry along together in, in many ways, if I could have strangely read both uh, poems at the same time and had them um, in a way speak to each other, in a sense, a bit like, um, like perhaps in an opera, you know, where you're talking about something underneath and something internal with something external and something historical and something in the future all at the same time, but held together by, um, by sound, by song, that, that's in a sense what I was trying to do. I was also trying to bring the, the work of two uh, women, Audre Lorde and Maud Salter, from who were very much 20th century poets, but have, but kind of remind me of, of a time when they, when lots of us were speaking, but absolutely nobody was listening. And I guess with these two uh, poets, I was trying to say, you better be listening this time. You better be listening now because you weren't listening to them. Well, that, they're gone, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I found really kind of almost jarring, scarring even, is, you know, Ocean Vong probably is most successful in terms of people reading their work of the four, but 
I was in kind of, I mean, a little bit of discomfort constantly seeing Audrey Lord, like every single text she's written in a penguin, like little mini slim version, all these penguin reproductions. When we know that in her lifetime, so much was, you know, published in MLA conference papers or not, not seen at all, or impossible to find. I mean, in my lifetime, it's, it was impossible to find Audre Lorde's poems 10 years ago. And Maud Salter's poems were actually introduced to me by a teacher because she was Scottish and um, Ghanaian. And uh, we had a po poet in residence who read that work and that's how I was introduced, but you couldn't get it. It's still <laughs> impossible to get. And that notion, I guess, of restitution <laughs> is, fundamental, but it's also really difficult, I find, because I don't know, you know, you've read something and Maud's work is still very hard to get, like to get it, you know, and I, I suppose what I, this is like an open-ended question to everyone, because we're, in terms of the end of the session is, poetry as a practice is, something that is usually published in very small numbers. It's not, um, it's usually published by in more independent presses with fewer resources. And Lubaina, if you could kick it off for us, I mean, how do you think we can, ways for us to sustain that beyond our lifetimes that our words in poetry and these people's words live on? Well, um, I don't. I don't know. I I sometimes publish uh, other people's work. You know, sort of part of publishing the small amounts uh, of work uh, of Maud's. Um, but I think that you know, I think all of us who now don't see ourselves as uh, painters or poets, musicians or scientists, you know, we need to. Um, be speaking across, joining these ways of expressing ourselves together, not, not uh, thinking of the thing aside, you know, poetry over there. Mm. It's very much, we can see something, a way, of, a way of thinking, a way of expressing ourselves that's very much, it, it, it allows itself, it wants to be, um, expressed by in many many different ways the point is to keep speaking it to each other i think and keep uh, understanding that it that it that it is for everyone it it isn't some separate thing that's over there and mm, and difficult mm. it's difficult in a good way you know uh, it's, it's a question of exchanging i think constantly exchanging this work I think that's what we're doing today and mm. come from different disciplines, all of us. And yeah. although we're all artists and poets to a degree, we were also lots of other things. And that's what's so yeah. beautiful about the writing is that it embodies so many different spirits. Uh, Otto, do you, or Isaiah and Aiz, do you want to any closing words from, from any of you? Bear in mind, we're only speaking to each other, really. Well, I can quickly say something. I think um, 
coming from an African context of like thinking of the entanglement of language and landscape and also of you know the language your grandfather or your mother would use um, might be a proverb might be a poem so she might not tell you directly what you should do but she would recite something that has been recited to her <laughs> through that recitation you would have to sit down and think about your decision so that entanglement of even that language in relation to a, a tree to the water bodies is so connected the poetry of that is just being and existing mm. uh, and so that notion of even the way we we work as artists um, what I find beautiful sometimes is um, I would see an artist that would then you know um, use the a poem of another writer to be able to create a, a, um, a work or to be able to put that as a title of the work. And so that poetry or that reference now becomes locked together with someone else's poetry, um, with someone else's thought. And so you can create a kind of chain of references which don't go in the normal way of references, but through making work, through discussion, discussing, and there's more of a fluidity of things. And, and, and I think I adhere to that African um, notion of thinking with words, but also making with those words and also taking decisions with that. And, and, and it's also connected to the soil. I mean, when Isaiah talks about this tree um, or when you talk even about identity, um, what that means in relation to the words and the way of thinking of the body, thinking of water bodies, thinking of tree bodies and what kinds of forms and voices have said and have put that in the world. And how does that relate to the way you can even amplify those voices that are silent? Or that have been silenced and for me i'm interested i think it's kind of interesting to think about that in relation to poetry which allows for that kind of fluidity well we, this has been really feels like just a start really uh in many a sense i really do wish you were in we were in a living room um the one that you're in libena seems nice <laughs> nice um, yeah, it's actually the only one of spaces that we're in that I've been in, to, been in except for the shroud of darkness behind me. Um, uh, so, but I do hope that this is the beginning of a conversation amongst us, but also we're thinking amongst and between each other in different ways. And I thank you all. But hold on, before you go, isn't it? I'd love to hear Isaiah and Anais to conclude also, and then we can leave. Mm -hmm. Just to sort of hear all our voices at the last moment. Symphonic end. Yes. <laughs> I don't have a, a kind of beautiful concluding remark, but I just feel um, happy for this gathering and, and to, mm. to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Nice meeting you. Yeah. Yes. has been lovely meeting all of you. Isaiah? Um, yeah, I, I think Audubon put it so beautifully, um, actually, but um, I'm just, I'm really grateful to be here with all of you. Um, it's been awesome hearing you. Um, so thank you.
And I, I, do, I do hope that we remember that these spaces are for us as opposed to just performing in fish bowls, but really to try and take something from them for us and uh, claim these spaces for ourselves. And I am, yeah, incredibly grateful because you all have not only given uh, each other, but certainly me, I've got some room to think of quite a lot of things because the voice, the power of the voice to animate a history, you know, whether that historical moment was offered 15 minutes ago or in 1981 or in 1970, it doesn't really matter because the voice brings the past into the present in such an unusually powerful way. And that's why I played that cacophonic playing of Strange Fruit, which if we, if we go back to Thursday, it kind of makes sense. But um, we are on fragile ground at this moment. We are standing in an expanse that is maybe fluid and generative, but it's also very fragile. And that fragility, that, that notion that things can splinter at any moment, I think is, and I'm not just simply speaking of a world of a pandemic, which doing this platform ha has been very interesting to speak to a musician in Zimbabwe where they're still in a lockdown versus in England where there is no requirement to wear a face mask, you know, in many a place. But that is one aspect of it. But there are layers and layers around the work that we do as individuals who speak a very particular truth that require consistent amplifying. And if it's not our own voices that need amplifying, it's those that are around us who we treasure and love, whose, whose, whose stories may be in notebooks and in memories that could disappear. And so I, I appreciate, I so appreciate that animation of those histories in this space. And I implore you all and everyone in the audience also who may be a poet or an author or a thinker or a creative to do the same for the rest of us, for the community as a whole. So thank you so much, Lubena, Anais, Isaiah, Ottobong for this afternoon. I'll treasure it. And I hope that you guys all do too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye now. Thank